Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two pawns. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate puzzle. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the topics of the day. So quick intros. First up, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we have Robert, crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Then we have Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. And then we have myself, Asib, I'm head hype man at Dragonfly. And today we have joining us a special guest, uh, long in demand, finally was able to uh, come on the show, Anatoly Yakovenko, czar at Solana. So uh, quick caveat, the four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice or legal advice or even life advice. Anatoly, welcome. First off, all of your things have alliteration except czar. Do we spell czar with an S V now? <laughs> I, I was originally going to intro him as CTO of Solana, but Anatoly specifically requested czar or senior <laughs> staff engineer. And so we went with czar because it had a little more punch to it. But uh, don't, don't blame me. Don't blame Anatoly. Anyway, uh, but Anatoly, it's great to have you on. I have to tell you, we have been talking about Solana almost every other episode. <laughs> it's it's pretty hard to run a show in crypto without talking about Solana constantly. That that's been our goal. That's really that's it. Just like how do we get people to talk about it? <laughs> that's why you're constantly having to deal with crap like this. And and you have a perfect track record of fifty percent positive yes. and fifty yes. percent negative talk. <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. We've been we 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 have at many times gotten pretty heated in our discussions about truly. Truly an Ethereum killer then, because I think that was Ethereum's place when Bitcoin was the only game in town. And it was uh, it really split. That really split the conversation into people that were either pro or against it. Solana is officially the most contentious blockchain today. That is for sure. So you, you might remember we had um, a guest a little while back, Andre Cronier, who's, I guess, now kind of semi-retired but doing his own thing. But you speak kind of you know, chief guy at Phantom among a bunch of other projects. And the, the original impetus for us bringing you on was that there was a quote tweet of a snippet from the show where he claimed that, uh, well, I think it was like, Solana is not even a blockchain. And he was talking all the shit about Solana and we were like, okay, well, we should, we should get Anatoly on for the counterpoint. Um, do, you, do you know Andre by any chance? Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, I've talked to him a bunch. Would have loved for him to work on Solana in those early days when we're trying to bootstrap Serum, but... You know, he he was doing his own thing and we were doing our own thing. Learning Rust for like a Solidity dev is really tough because they went through a lot of like shading in those early Ethereum days. And when you do that as a developer, you kind of like become a master of your domain, right? You know the nits and crannies and throwing all that away and moving to a new system, it's, it hurts. Like you have to kind of give up a part of your brain. It takes years for you to get to that point. So like after like, 10 years, you'll be like, what is, why is like half my brain occupied with these useless details? 
I'm just going to like remove that entire part and then throw it out. <laughs> but like it, it'll take some time for that to happen. <laughs> that happened with me in C++ for like for a decade. I knew every nook and cranny in C++. And then at one point I was like, why is half of my brain occupied with useless details? And just like snip. <laughs> amputated it was all gone i have to ask you directly like you know i know that i remember um you commented on the on the tweet thread when we the, the snippet of of uh, him claiming that solana is a is not a real blockchain and um i think that it, there, there are kind of two things that i think have been the crux of what people argue about on twitter about solana the one thing is how decentralized is solana the second thing is how how stable or how live or how how much uptime does Solana have? So right off the bat, I think those are probably the two things that we should jump into. What is your response to the critics, the naysayers about those subjects? But both of those are kind of the same thing. If you look at like fundamentally, what is uh, what do these systems provide? It's extreme security. And the extreme part comes from the fact that in a catastrophic failure, Yellowstone blows up, something like that, that there's at least one copy of the state that survives. And it's provably that that's a copy because there's cryptographic signatures from the quorum that we can validate. And from that single copy, we, we can recover the whole state machine and it continues. That's really what the system's supposed to do. And it provides some ways for people to update those state and continue running. The fact that there's uptime issues is kind of irrelevant because they're all temporary doesn't really matter if there's a four-hour period between blocks because that doesn't really impact the fundamental thing that this thing provides, which is catastrophic failure, like security against catastrophic failure. But it does, it does impact the applications built on top. Yeah. That is like, that, that is us eating shit and like dealing with those problems and it sucks and it 100, it's 100 like percent bad and like obviously all the engineering effort is on that. But when you think about it from like, what is the purpose of these systems? Is this like massive amount of security that is so massive that it, you trust it more than Google? That's like the really cool thing. And when you kind of dig into it, like, do I trust that Google will lose my state or even a combination of Google, Microsoft and Amazon? Is it possible for all of them to fuck up and lose my state? That's more likely than a network like Solana with thousands of participants that are all running different servers, different configurations all over the world, right? That That's the cool thing about it. The uptime thing, yeah, the uptime thing definitely sucks. That that's uh, But that's like day-to-day business like uh, for applications and, uh, you know, we each for it, not just on Twitter, right? Like users, folks like Magic Eaton, companies with real revenues step in, right? Like had like 100 million third quarter, right? Or whatever, second quarter. They depend on the network running to generate those dollars, right? Like, so. That is all true when we contrast like centralized systems with decentralized systems, being able to verify backup state is all true. I think the criticisms or maybe the comparisons are more across blockchains, right? Like, because any blockchain has a lot of those principles, right? Even like, I don't know, something random like Ethereum Classic is, is you know, it's, it's true that you could like, you know, replay, recreate the state and anybody can sort of, uh, you know, audit it. The question is like for day-to-day use cases of you know this this product, it's like like where in that spectrum is like acceptable to lie, right? Like is it acceptable for this to have you know one transaction per day and it's sort of guaranteed uptime and but unusable for like pretty much anybody? Or on the, there's a Solana end of the spectrum. I'm, I'm curious how you sort of think about 
that component of the trade-off. So there's a lot of people already working on the other quadrant, which is they built a system like, you know, proof of work based one that has really nice properties that allow to have basically infinite uptime because there's no definition of Bitcoin or POW system being down two hours between blocks, right? Like last year, nobody said Bitcoin was down. They're just like, oh, people are moving miners and now it's going to take a little longer for blocks sometimes. Two hours between blocks and Solana, it's down, <laughs> right? Like, so there is a definition of being down on Solana because we're now in a different ball game altogether. It's providing a block every four to milliseconds. There's literally no gaps between blocks by design. So when there are gaps that are even like 10 minutes, everyone's pager duty is off and we're trying to figure out what the fuck is happening and, and why. Um, so I think this is where I think things are just different and you, in these new class of, of chains that have, that need this like constant uptime and constant throughput for, there's no way we can, we can be like service the world if there is like, if there's downtime, but also if the solution is let's increase fees for everyone. And like uh, the network is effectively only up for a very small percentage of users at that point. So that brings us to fee markets. But before we get there, I kind of want to drill in on this point a little bit deeper. So when we had Kyle on, on a previous show, we sort of, we sort of asked him like, Hey, so what's this was, this was right after I think the last, uh, you know, kind of notable period of Solana downtime. And, um, Kyle's answer to like, okay, what's going, what's the deal with all the downtime that we've had this year? Uh, his answer was like, look, Solana made some very explicit trade-offs about trying to eke out very high performance at the expense of stability. And they went to market faster. They got things out the door quicker. And now they're paying the cost. And that cost has to be paid down one way or another. And look, it is unique among blockchains, right? It's, it's pretty clear that there, there are no other major blockchains that have the stability issues that Solana has, but there are also no other blockchains that have the adoption that Solana has or the, the throughput that Solana has. But his framing of it was that this is basically a choice that Solana made that it's now paying down. Do you agree with that characterization or do you think that that's uh, not the way you describe we it? We didn't do it intentionally. We made the wrong decisions at the right time, but it wasn't what, like... What do you mean by that? When we were designing this thing, literally the use case we were designing for was basically Serum. It was a central limit order book. Our like benchmark that we had internally was basically a, a very dumb central limit order book. And the idea was that all the transactions are going to be very small because limit orders, buy bids, asks, cancels, they don't take any compute. The most, uh, the biggest part of that whole computationally pipeline is the signature verification. So our fee model is very, very dumb. Most transactions are going to be extremely fast to process. And the system should charge per signature. And if the number of signatures per second that is processing exceeds some threshold, we double the fees for everyone. And then that forces like spam to back off. And that, that's a very, very rudimentary design for a system that mostly runs something like Serum. We actually got Serum was like the first major use case, right? That we were like, right, surprisingly, that never happens in startups. <laughs> but what we were wrong about was... All the complexity around like composable DeFi didn't just call Serum. They wanted to call the lending protocol plus the AMM plus Serum at the same time and do these compl complicated swaps. And like Radium, like 
build an AMM on top of Serum that like really took the limits of computational what the system can do. And now you ended up with uh, really, really heavy transactions that had hotspots on particular parts of the state that were just really, really expensive to handle. And all the bots and everybody in the world that wanted to take that like $5 or whatever ARB would just slam them like immediately. And this is something that we didn't expect that use case. And what we built worked for Serum and just totally didn't work for everything else. So that technical debt was um, unintentionally there. The mistake that we made, like, or the the not mistake that we make is we let the design we we let the design be open for these u- other use cases to spring up, with the idea is like, okay, people are going to try random. Shit. We don't know what actual product market fit is in crypto, so we didn't lock down the system to the point that it only works for Serum because that would have been a disaster, right? Like none of the stuff that you see on Solana right now would have been possible. That would have been like I think a bigger mistake than allowing this stuff to flourish and then obviously blow up in our face a couple of times that we had to like hustle to fix. That, that kind of brings us to one of the things that we talked about on the show as well is about fee markets on Solana. And I know that in the past you were relatively opposed to the idea of imposing fee markets because you've described it as wanting Solana to be the NASDAQ of blockchains. Is that the, I think yes. that's the quote that I've, I've heard that all, you say before. That all comes from that idea that like what we're going to run is mostly centrally limited book transactions right. by volume, right. and the, those don't need fee markets, really. Right. And the fee markets mean that you need something approaching a mempool, you need to be ordering transactions, yeah. you need to be doing all this stuff that if it's just a giant stream of things that are happening, uh, you don't need to, to do that amount of work. But it seems like the fee market has been the approach that you guys have landed on, although a version of a fee market that's quite different than most of the blockchains. Talk us through what made you change your mind and or the community change okay. their mind about the fee market approach. And what is the approach that you're taking? How does it differ from other blockchains? So this is, again, had we not made those early mistakes, we wouldn't have discovered this, right? Like it wouldn't have been obvious to me at, those, at that time because I, I'm, a, I'm an engineer that is very learned practically. I have to see the data, like see how the system works, how it's broken. And that, that was something that we just couldn't foresee. And basically the, what we discovered, and this is obvious to me now in retrospect, is that these systems have very traditional database hotspot problems. You have a whole bunch of state. In Solana, the state is organized in a, as a key value store. Each key represents a public key, effectively, and each value is an account with data. And those accounts represent both user state and program state. There's really no distinction. So you have like an AMM. There's a program that doesn't have any state that processes these key values. And the value would be the AMM market. And the, the key would rep, you know, point to that AMM market. So when you have a hotspot, it means everybody's calling the exact same AMM key value. And they're constantly hitting that one market because they want to swap those ARPs or the same serum market. So it's not a, like a smart contract specific. It's specific to a single state. And that hotspot, it doesn't matter how fast we make it. Like imagine it's a switch and everybody wants to flip the same switch in the room doesn't matter how fast you flip that switch. Like if we made it flip in one nanosecond, it wouldn't really matter. If we could flip a million switches in parallel, it wouldn't really matter. What matters is if you have a hundred people that all want to flip that switch first, you have a hotspot and everyone throws a whole bunch of transactions, only one of which can actually go through. And that problem is solved by a mempool. 
Uh, but it's solved in a way that creates one giant heap of requests to all access a single global state machine. And that means when you have an NFT launch, you know, or airdrop to all the ape holders, and all of a sudden fees go up, you still have DeFi protocols that are like, I need to land this liquidation. I have a Chainlink Oracle that needs to land this liquidation. Now I have to outbid all these stupid NFT people to land, to do my like day-to-day process. And now you have a bidding war between hotspots that create these like really, really bad scenarios, right? On Ethereum. And the only way to fix that is to isolate them. And this is my bearish argument against generic L2s. L2s segregate state logically, right? Different L2s have different states that they own, but they don't, they're not, they're all generic. So you can't like, they're not going to solve fees because you're still going to have an L2 that has NFTs and DeFi at the same time. And if you have an NFT drop and liquidations that all need to occur at the same time, the mempool for that L2 is going to blow up. The only way to do this is to actually isolate these transactions by normal database transaction isolation, make sure that stuff that's processing hotspot A does not impact hotspot B. So we, there's no way I could have predicted that this is what we needed to build before we actually saw this problem, right? Like, I don't know, maybe smarter people have seen it, but like... <laughs> I, I would say one thing, um, your description of this problem does seem to be very pro-app chain. Because in the sense of Cosmos, yes. Cosmos actually yep. has mainly built been built around trying to isolate these types of um, state state congestion issues. So, I guess you know from you, knowing what you know now, what des- design decisions would you have changed and say? Yeah, we would have built this. We would have built this fee model, like I think from the start, and the model is pretty simple because. We already know which what like we already did all the hard work, which means we force devs to specify in their transaction which accounts they're gonna need to read, which accounts they're gonna need to write. So that's actually the hard work is forcing that design onto all the applications. Once you have that information, all you're doing is sorting the transactions into buckets and then like making sure that priority like is based on some kind of fee. So both of those things we added, it's just that once the network is matured, releases and moving shit out into an ecosystem takes longer than us YOLOing a change in, in like, you know, March 2020 when it was <laughs> when it was pretty easy to make make changes like that. So <clears throat> there was this paper uh, in the last six months by this this sort of famous cryptographer, Victor Shoup, about, you know, proof of history kind of like not quite having a lot of the desired properties. And also, you know, I think in, in some of the downtime scenarios, the proof of history module was sort of one of the things that seemed to have a lot more trouble. If you went back in time, would you still have proof of history? So Tarun, can you very briefly explain what proof of history is and, and how it figures in sure. Solana? Um, so proof of history is effectively a way of doing sort of a minimal proof of work like system of like doing a repeated hash that someone can verify that allows you to sort of have some notion of like sequencing of slots that in a in a more linear fashion the problem is it sort of doesn't have certain guarantees and also can cause a lot of extra traffic uh, on the network 
at the worst times, at the times when when things are kind of ha- have the most general traffic. So what was what was the extra traffic? Like, what's the extra traffic? The the proof sizes? Yeah, basically people spamming the proofs effectively when they they can't get any other slots in, any other transactions that they're they're gossiping. Like, uh, at least that was sort of the argument. We haven't this. seen that being like a major bottleneck. So. If the chain gets into a state where blocks are getting dropped by propagation is just not happening, the currently like the nodes just retry. Like it doesn't really matter. Like they just retry their previous block, and like, the chain on proof history kind of stalls. In effect, what happens during a, an outage is you have a, a complicated system. It's a database, right? It's trying to run in constant memory because that, that's a requirement, and. Uh, you have a scenario where there's like these people have built bots that spam it with like a hundred gigabits worth of traffic. Bitfinex called that a denial DDoS, right? But that's not really DDoS level at this point. <laughs> DDoSs are, are much, much higher now. It's just normal bot traffic. People really, really motivated to get early in an NFT drop. This is not even for liquidations or complex finance or HFT. This is purely to get uh, an NFT drop. And the 4 million or 5 million packets per second that are being processed are moving through these queues and stages. And if one of those queues has unbounded allocation, the queue blows up, memory grows really, really quickly, and the validator just runs out of memory and crashes. And then it tries to restart. And to restart, it takes time to process the current state, hash a bunch of stuff, verify hashes, and catch up with the network. If a third of the nodes run out of memory, in that condition, you basically are in a situation where it becomes really, really hard for them to catch up with the block producers that are still trying to produce blocks. And the network then is in a state that's like, it's easier for the validators to decide that, okay, we can let it run and see if it catches up. Eventually it could, or we just get everyone together and we like kill this particular uh, shred version which is like a network ID for the current, how we currently propagate blocks, increment it, and then continue. That means all the old block, all the old proposed blocks get dropped automatically, and then people continue from the last known slot. And that's just a decision that they make wherever they, whenever they feel like. But it's not a, we haven't seen like proof of history or anything like that fail, like cause a catastrophic failure or cascading effects yet. Well, I assume everybody followed that, that, that's that. Well, I mean, what you just described sounded super obvious. So I don't even know why we had to discuss it. <laughs> so, like the the bugs that we have are like dumb on a memory programming bugs. It's a complicated database. Somebody somewhere, probably me, if you could blame it, wrote that code and didn't correctly <laughs> manage the state. <laughs> but I, I want to go back. I want to go back to the the point you're making about isolation. I remember. I remember back uh, before Solana was live, before all these Alto ones was live. I remember you did. It was, it was you and Alex Skidinov from Nier. You guys were sitting on a couch. Uh, I think it was like ETH Denver or something. And you were arguing about basically vertical scaling versus horizontal scaling, right? And, and the, the meme at that time was that Solana is vertical scaling. Solana is you take a big beefy server and you run it all on the same machine. And Nier and ETH 2.0 at some point, you know, event, in that moment in time, we thought ETH 2.0 was going to be actually have shards. The sharded approach is you have you know, a lot of small machines and you horizontally scale. As when you're talking about isolation, isolation is almost you know the, kind of to the dot description of what horizontal scaling gives you versus vertical scaling. 
How have your thoughts about sharding versus the Solana, you know, just big beefy machine approach, how has that evolved over time? Or do you, are you basically like, look, I think we made the right choice. So I, I think we made the right choice. I think the, the problem with the other choice and kind of described it as unless you have app specific chains, you're not really isolating anything. And with app specific chains, you're breaking composability. And that becomes really, really hard on like all the really cool, weird DeFi use cases. That, that's like the trade-off, right? Like you stick NFTs in a separate thing, you stick your lending protocol in another thing. So its liquidations don't touch any other lending protocol, right? Like you, you'd have to have like Compound and Aave in separate app chains. Because like, what if, what if both need to be liquidated at the same time, right? Like that, that becomes, that, that's the issue there. And that sucks. I think fundamentally that, that sucks from uh, the magic of crypto, the magic of, uh, of smart contracts. No, that makes sense. At the same time, it also seems surprising that, you know, Solana, it's very clear, especially from your description, that when you guys were designing Solana, you were designing it around the use case that you were imagining with Serum. The NASDAQ of blockchains, right? Like you guys see very clearly this is going to be the DeFi chain. And it's not it's DeFi. NFTs and pictures actually, of monkeys that yeah, yeah. has ended up being the predominant <laughs> thing that keeps taking down Solana. <clears throat> how, do you, how do you think about that? How, or how does that strike you, if anything? I think it's awesome. Honestly, I think the internet is, is like typically the best versions of the internet is just sharing pictures of cats, right? Like doing funny shit. And I, I think it's awesome to see that NFTs are basically like people having fun with this stuff and not really taking it too seriously. That's been, I think, more interesting to me than trying to like convince, I don't know, the Goldman Sachs of the world that lending the, their bar and lending books should be on chain. <laughs> Robert can do that like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. happy to do that. I love that conversation. I don't get to enjoy the I like yeah. You the enjoy reason, plenty of pictures. That's true. I do enjoy the pictures. Like the NASDAQ use case was like interesting to me because I'm a, I like high performance systems. So that, that needed, needs a lot of throughput. DeFi that doesn't need a lot of throughput was just not something that I was super interested in because it can run somewhere else, right? So there was no, there's no need for Solana if the only DeFi use cases are borrow and lending. But if central limit order books exist, then I think it's obviously that you need something like Solana. And now that NFTs are a thing, I think when you're talking about minting like we're, we see 100 to 200,000 NFTs minted per day on the network. And that's with like, you know, few million humans out there messing around with the stuff. If we go to hundreds of millions of users and now we're talking five, 10 million NFTs minted per day, you need a network like Solana right, to support that. And that's, that's interesting. So speaking of different use cases for Solana, one of the big news stories from the last, from, it was a couple of weeks ago, but we figured we were having you on. We should, we should talk about it when you're here is the Saga phone. So the Saga phone is a Solana branded phone that is going to have native Solana support from the get-go. And there was a lot of, there's been a lot of conversation about the Saga phone, how likely it is to succeed, whether how long ago this was conceived of, and whether it, it was intentionally announced into the, you know, the bottom of a bear. If you, if you look on chain, it looks like there are a couple thousand pre-orders for this thing already. I, so I'm first of all, really curious of just uh, how do these things happen? Is this like, a Solana foundation is like, hey guys, we should do a phone. 
does, is a third party that's like, hey guys, we're thinking about doing a Solanophone and you guys are like, cool, here's some branding and you guys are like, did this come, was this your idea? Was this someone else's idea? Like how did this happen? Um, it was my idea and it happened because I met through, do, do you know Race Capital guys, Edith, Chris McCann? Yeah, yeah. Through like them, like Alfred uh, on their team, he's like, um, I was just, I think what what the space needs is like Apple and Google to really open up to crypto. Like that would, that would really like, I think, accelerate everything. And the only way that's going to happen is if somebody builds an alternative model and shows that it works and like, this is what I would do. And they're like, you should go talk to Jason X. He was like the first employee at Essential, basically first or second. I architect at iPad Pro, awesome entrepreneur, awesome builder, like super hardware nerd. And they built an awesome phone. And when I talked to him, I was like, we should go do this. And it was because of him that this happened, right? I just met the right person to do it. There's no way I think I could push this idea through a, a big corporation. Like you can, right? You can make deals and do all this other stuff, but you really need like, like a driven CEO that's kind of gets the vision and is willing to push through this because it's not just like, we don't want this to be like the previous crypto phones where it's just a wallet or something like that. There's a fundamental difference with sticking the, the signing infrastructure inside the trusted element. So the high level operating system, Android and the wallets cannot steal your keys, right? Like you, you, you create an environment where Phantom doesn't know your seed phrase and you have a, that means that we can have things like tap to pay. Like you go to a store and, you hit the button to pay, load whatever wallet you want that developers can innovate with. And you know that that wallet can never steal your funds. And that wallet's UI can now be used to pay for whatever purchases you want. And that opens up a whole like new channel, channel of innovation, right? Devs can build cool shit that can integrate with like merchants. It could be bi-directional channels. Every time you buy something, you get NFTs or whatever. Like all that stuff that people dream about, like with crypto, and programmable money is now possible because the software that you're using and interacting with never has access to the seed phrase, right? And that, that level of security, I think, is necessary. And this is something that when I was at Qualcomm, this is like, what, this point, six years ago, all this, all this existed. Trust zone existed. All the application stuff you can build in trust zones, all that stuff is there. They just don't enable it because there's no provable product market fit for it. So we want to drive that forward. I don't know when this is going to break out, like when is it going to be relevant, but I do believe like somewhere in the next three to five years, we're going to see a moment where every mobile phone out there has signing inside the trusted element, right? That has like Web3 enabled natively. Like it just, it's just obvious to me, right? Like, well, that, that is one thing that you guys have been amazingly effective at is breaking out of the cold start problem. And I mean, that's, that's the struggle that every layer one goes through. And that's also the struggle that any new line of hardware goes through is, yep. you know, okay, it's, it's one thing to have, okay, I have my beautiful Solana phone, I can look at it and pet it. But if nobody actually, if, 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 if there are no merchants, if there are no applications, if there's no, you know, blah, 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 that if there aren't enough people who own this phone, then you're not going to have enough developers who are creating experiences that are native for this phone. Like everyone's going to assume you're on mobile web. Not enough people are going to integrate whatever SDK you need in order to interact with the, yep. the trusted element. Um, so how do you think about that? How does this phone break out of that, you know, no man's land? 
So I worked on like every phone that failed, the WebOS phones, you guys remember those, the Amazon Fire, the Metro, the Windows Metro one, a couple other ones that were just code names. Basically, it's really, really hard. And the thing that I think how we can possibly succeed, and it's not guaranteed, is that I think the big store marketplaces right now are so bad to Web3 that 50,000 Web3 users that have this device with no restrictions in the store with how Web3 apps can, can talk to them is a better distribution channel for crypto-native developers and the big app stores. Like Magic Eden can't really ship an awesome marketplace on mobile because Google wants 20% of fees on user-generated content that Magic Eden doesn't control. A $10,000 NFT, Magic Eden cannot charge the user 12000 in their mobile experience when it's listed for 10000 on the web. That just doesn't make sense nor can they eat that cost, right? Because they don't own that property, right? Like all of, all of the big app store business models are around the idea that the content, the mobile app is owned by the content provider. The content provider is the creator and they can charge whatever they want, right? And then Google can put a tax on that. And that doesn't work in a digital owned economy. That's just not like, you have to treat digital objects the same way that you do physical ones, like eBay, right? You're not going to charge 20% markup on the eBay mobile app. And that, that model is just, you know, they have a lot of VPs, a lot of layers of decision making. I don't know what's it going to take for that to like percolate to the top and for them to change their policies. I hope is that like maybe we make enough noise that that happens. And that's a good outcome, right? Like I think for the space is that even if we fail commercially, but we change both how Google and Apple treat Web3, that, that's a win. But like how we succeed, I think, is we get it to hardcore crypto devs. It's open source. So like, Robert, if you still code, go submit the Ethereum integration. It'll, it'll, yeah, okay. You know, I've never coded. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm <laughs> if you still have, uh, hey, 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 I, I, a secret is, uh, is Robert used to make TI-83 games. Okay, okay. That's true. Uh, and that was that was programming in basic, basically. If there's so. still Ethereum founders that code. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're mostly retired now after uh, prices have come down. You know, if there's anybody, uh, if there's still Ethereum founders that code, it is honestly open source. We'll, we'll literally take more changes than uh, MetaMask would take a lot of changes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, I, I, I have um, another Solana-based question, kind of changing gears a little bit. We got a, by the way, we got a lot of questions about the Saga phone. So I think people, it's, it's, a good, it's a good grounding for that story. One of the questions we also got from a bunch of people is comparisons with Aptos and Mistin, which are the new Facebook slash Move-based chains. I think you responded in some of the, um, the Twitter comments that you weren't super familiar with what they're doing. But I think I, I see them as the most common comparison to you guys. And I spoke with um, someone from, from Solana Labs who was telling me that internally at Solana, you guys don't see Avalanche or BSC or any of these guys as your primary competitor. You see Aptos and Mistin as your primary competitor. Is that is true? There, uh, and, and please elaborate on that if it is. I think so. I, I think I have this theory that it's a little controversial that X and obviously the reason behind Solana's design comes from that is that execution is like the really hard part in all these systems. EV like consensus is, is 
relatively simple, like compared to the the runtime. And this is why you've seen a lot of innovation in consensus because you can build all these consensus systems. The security failure in consensus is extremely unlikely one. It requires collusion from a large set of participants, right? And then partition the network and then do a double spend. Everybody, this is not going to happen right now because the number of participants in crypto that are don't want to collude, that rather make money, <laughs> right? Like the traditional way is much, much larger than the, the number of like attackers that are willing to stake. And like, it, it's just very, extremely unlikely. And and in the execution land, building a VM, any bug could be a catastrophic failure. You're, you're running untrusted user code with untrusted inputs. And any exploit in that virtual machine can blow the whole thing up. And they can blow up it from a total loss of funds, catastrophic, or application-specific one, or like a reliability failure, like you saw with the Shanghai attacks. But building EVM was, I think, the hardest problem in launching Ethereum. And that's why I think you've seen a lot of stickiness for EVM. Because like when you're building a new consensus engine, you can go to market much, much faster by bolting EVM on top of it. And like, look, you've got an environment that's secure, right? You're, you're using Gath, right? Like everyone trusts it. You don't have to go like re-implement this extremely complex wheel, right? And that's actually where all the innovation and the cool like, like this is where you can actually innovate and build cool shit and capture a lot of value is in the execution layer. Consensus systems, nobody, devs don't care about what they do. They just care that they work. They hate, they hate us if it's something fails, right? But <laughs> what they wanted to do is just work. The execution environment is where devs play, they innovate, and developers need new tools, like I think every two years, because they're curious bunch. So when somebody actually like the team that built Move is uh, extremely awesome. They're like really smart folks. The design is really good. I think Move it, Move itself is a is a really good attempt at building a, a more secure way to build smart contracts. So I think there's an opportunity for them to actually build their own ecosystem because it's new and it's going to attract a bunch of curious devs. And if it's good, that could be enough for them to get stickiness. I'm not worried about yet another EVM chain. It's just like, Okay, all the they're all splitting themselves up, right? Like they're fighting over the same group of developers. They're not creating anything new. And like I was, I was going to ask, like going kind of back to the app chain, you know, bit for for a moment. Um, you know, why do we think? Why do you think we haven't seen other chains with the Solana VM using different consensus mechanisms? Yeah, the same way we have with EVM. Like, you know, if if we think, hey, this is a great developer experience. People love Rust. Like, why is Solana the only one? Especially when you know, if I'm of an app chain, I don't necessarily need the co-location. Um, I might want to run my own Dex even, like step in, like, you know, why am I paying a premium for this co-location block space versus just, you know, running it myself? Transactions in Solana are, cheap, are so cheap that it's pretty going to be more expensive to run your own app chain. <laughs> uh, that, that, that part is true, uh, I think, for Stepin. Like Stepin, even though being like having, I don't know, seven times more transaction volume and user volume than Uniswap, It'd be more expensive for them to host all those servers. It's also like a pain in the ass, I think, to to do that. So I'm not sure. I don't know. There, there's like one or two I've heard, but they're like pretty low, like credibility, I think, or haven't really gotten traction. 
I mean, it took a long time for there to be other really upstanding EVM chains. Like obviously, Ethereum Classic was the first. Ethereum was was quite a bit, you know, simpler and earlier back then in its life. And Ethereum Classic, of course, had tons of stumbles. It took two years to to go from like right to the, literally people to build a whole blockchain. Whole like it took Avalanche, Binance Smart Chain, all those guys the same amount of time to build whatever they built, like the their EVM based chain, we had to build consensus plus a runtime in that same amount of time. Yeah, definitely a heavier lift. I, I'm thinking of something even almost like XDI, right? It's like, I mean, maybe like Audius is a good example where it's like start out in XDI, migrate to Solana, better performance, cheaper block space. But like, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of the trend that we've seen, right? Like even DYDX moving from like Ethereum L1 to Starkware now to Cosmos, uh, you know, people just sort of shopping around for like block space. What would you get by by launching your own Solana chain? Well, I mean, I think sort of the argument would be, hey, maybe there's a premium to having your own token do validation or being able to capture MEV. <laughs> or I think especially, you know, when fees going up, you know, maybe there's an argument that, hey, we can have, you know, uh, cheaper fees by having it on our own chain. But so the way that Solana fees are designed is that there is no advantage to moving to an L2, right? Like you're. Like the, the fee problem isn't a block space constraint problem. It's a hotspot problem. So when you have 10 people that want to flip the same switch, it doesn't matter if that switch is flipped in a zero knowledge environment, in an L2, in an app chain, you still have 10 people that want to flip the same switch. So they will bid up to flip it. If you isolate them, that then they don't impact anyone else's and any other switches that are also doing their own thing. And if we can achieve that at Solana at the L1, there's no advantage to launching an app chain. The only reason you might want to do that is yeah, I mean, like... Yeah, true. that's true. That's true to an extent, right? It's not true. Let's say there are five hotspots simultaneously. Or let's assume that, you know, you've got one of these crazy NFT drops and, you know, people are just absolutely bombarding all the RPC endpoints. They're bombarding all of the all of the leaders and the leaders are basically being DDoSed with all the, all the you know, all the crazy requests that are going through. Um, certainly one can imagine that, look, if we just spin up a new Solana... Now, look, it's hard because Solana is a moving target. Solana is not like Ethereum, where basically it changes once every six months. So that, that I think, is another element of like, look, you just have to constantly know how to do the DevOps for Solana without being like tied to Solana. That's just really hard. I think the, those reliability issues would come with you, right? So whatever you spin up, it's the same code base, same RPCs. Yeah, except worse because you don't know how to run it. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think it'll be, I think there will be a time, almost certainly, if Solana continues to be successful, that Solana's code base will solidify and there will be people who run Solana Classic or whatever, you know, there will be other versions of Solana and some of them will gain legitimacy. Some of them might even be run by exchanges and some, you know, I don't know, gate.io or something will run their chain and it'll be based on Solana and they'll make the same arguments and you'll have the same combination of, Flattery and uh, annoyingness that will come from having another chain based on your code base. So if somebody's listening to this, there's a pull request that removed the move loader from the network before mainnet launched. The reason why we removed it is because running, running move as a native loader would have exposed that runtime meant that if there's a bug in that runtime, it's a bug in all of the state machine and that's a catastrophic failure. But you could literally take run your own version of Solana with Move and launch before Aptos and Suzuki. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I actually think and sorry again, my internet's 
I actually think the idea of Solana rollups is a very well, uh, an actually good idea in that you, you could imagine a rollup where the fee structure is different based on the use case. So like, basically, it's still running the Solana VM. So any bridging is at least like guaranteed to have certain execution properties to be bitwise identical, at least in the actual execution, maybe not in the, the fees. But the fees can be adjusted to like which parts of the runtime are more used in certain applications or seller applications. And in general, I think there's a lot, a lot of the modularity in the networking stack in the Solana code base actually lends itself quite well to basically having rollups that are running the Solana runtime. I, I, I actually kind of imagine that I, I know uh, Hasib was thinking more on the of the adversarial Solana runtime, like Phoebe does BNB, but like does it with Solana or something. That'd be fine. Anatoly's vision. Yeah. <laughs> Anatoly's vision. Oh my goodness. We need, we, need to, we need to create a bounty for Anatoly's vision. It only runs a uh, serum and that's it. <laughs> I, I, I think like for instance, a Solana runtime that's special purpose to do certain ZK things a lot better than the current runtime. Or like, you know, these, these things that at least guarantee that, hey, bitwise compatibility is easier and you don't have to have all of the problems we've ha- we've seen with basically every bridge to Solana a- a- and really like the, the translation layer where the translation layer is the part that like between multiple virtual machines that aren't bitwise identical leads to these like kind of nuanced bugs, right? So there, I, I don't know, I could see a world where Solana rollups are, there is like such a thing because like if there's already that much developer interest, people will start trying to specialize it in some way, shape or form. I mean, how do you feel about that? If, like, say, people started, sure, that'd be cool. If there's like stuff, if there's system calls that they need or like hooks into the VM, like I don't think we have an eval where you can tell the runtime to go evaluate itself. But that's relatively easy to add. If people need that, we'll definitely add it. Or terrifying, but you heard uh, <laughs> you heard it here first. Solana rollups coming coming at some point. <laughs> I mean, if people want to build it, I don't want to stop them. <laughs> sure. Speaking of rollups, though, so I so I think last year there was a lot of hullabaloo around Neon Labs, which is supposed to be this rollup. Unclear if it's actually a rollup or more just like a virtualized instance of the EVM on top of Solana. And I've heard through the grapevine. This is total speculation. I don't know if this is true. But I've heard through the grapevine that people are writing off whether they're ever going to come to market or whether even that was the right approach. And people are like, ah, you know, whatever. People made a big deal out of it, but that's not the direction that you want to be focusing on. What is your, what, what, what say Anatoly about the prospects for EVM on Solana? Does it make sense? Does it not make sense? Do you even care about it? I think there's two projects. One is Neon, and I think it's live on Tesla, so you can go and mess around with it. I don't know if what's blocking them from mainnet, but it should be pretty close. But like the, the hard challenge is like you're taking Ethereum, a version of Ethereum that was built in Rust, and you compiled it as a Solana program, and then you're hooking up all the all the APIs that MetaMask expects Geth to implement against that thing, right? And the problem is that like you take a Ethereum transaction. And you submit it to Solana, and it takes more time than is allowed for a Solana transaction to take. So you have to create a continuation where you cache, like you cache the partial computation of this EVM as it's churning, and you tell it to like, okay, stop, and then I'm gonna go send 
another continuation for you to continue and then crank in until it's over. And you have to make that system to be compatible with whatever MetaMask expects. So how that like fits, I think is pretty close, but I think there's like a little, you know, I don't know if they gotten everything right, but I think they're getting closer and closer to it. Working. Yeah, if I recall, they had like a super tight gas limit for right. transactions that could execute in reasonable time. That's a hard, hard approach. And I think if it's not live yet, it, it's pretty close. Like go, go mess around with it and see what's broken. Like I'm sure they, they need people to, to like just play with it and tell them what, what's, what sucks. There's another one that is one that I like more personally, because this is, this is just part of the stack that I, I like. And that's, taking uh, Solidity and implementing it as an LLVM front end, and then going through LLVM, just generating a native Solana program. But that approach means that the result is not going to be compatible with EVM, right? It's a different state model. You should re-audit that code. <laughs> failure of, of the eWASM project, perhaps you could argue is a project management failure of the, on the on the behalf of the Ethereum Foundation. On the other hand, you could also argue that it's the LLVM runtime and the EVM just have too many thorns that don't quite, you know, fit together. And that, that was really the problem. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, it it's that one, is, like, but the, the, again, the reason why they needed that to work byte for byte, comp- be exactly compatible, that's the same challenge that Nian is working on. That's a really hard problem. With Solang, we're kind of like saying it's not EVM compatible, so don't even worry about that. But it compiles Solidity and runs as you expect, right? It just it's just not EVM compatible, and that that I think is a pretty cool approach that's pretty flexible. And like if you're a Solidity dev, you can go use that right now, and you can go get started and build native Solana programs in Solidity. And that's actually something that I think I would like to see move uh, implemented as a native Solana, like through LLVM pass. Like, I think this is something that like whatever, whenever there's a new runtime or a new language, that's the approach that I want to use to like keep adding the support for these systems. Um, there's a grant, I think from the Solana foundation to the Ziglang team. Zig is like, uh, you, you talk about like C plus plus and then rust and then Zig. Zig is like this. <laughs> it's a very small, nerdy com- community on building high performance, like C, like next version of C, basically. So, like stuff like this, I think is awesome to enable for devs because these are new tools, and devs are curious. They need new stuff to go play around and, and like innovate with. So, do I care? Do I care about EVM on Solana? I care about Solidity on Solana more so than EVM because I want devs to have tools to uh, to do stuff with that that's the long story but not specifically because i care about like trying to get ethereum dumps to move over i just want to like have the tools there for them to to go do whatever they want so so i will say one thing you do actually care about evm and not solana because the evm semantics and we've already seen this with all the eth rollups where the fact that you can't just redeploy on some of them and it like actually gives you like bitwise compatible liquidations it turns out there's some condition under which like zk sync doesn't do the correct liquidation in, in in compound like that type of stuff you really want to prevent people from doing and you do want the like bytecode level semantics to have the same or or you're just honest about it right and it's something like Solang. you recompile it it's a new program and you re-audit it 
you actually rethink about it and see what what are in this new environment like what actually happens and that may mean that you may need to maintain two versions of compound and that's fine right but like you should just understand that behavior <laughs> I, I i do think it will be it, it does get hairy from uh keeping track of like what changes correspond to what audit and like the the kind of like overload for developers will mean that mistakes will be made no matter what in, in such a scenario though and it's of course always true in crypto that developers are surprisingly lazy or that some developers i should say are surprisingly lazy and will the best developers are lazy <laughs> well the worst developers are lazy in different ways and the best developers are lazy i will say i will yeah. say that okay so we we this whole episode we've kind of done a really deep dive on solana and kind of your thinking and and how how solana has evolved as a blockchain i want to shift gears a little bit talk more about kind of your journey so you know i remember back in the 2018 2019 bear market when you were just first fundraising for solana i remember actually one of the very first one of the very first talks I went to as an investor, I just started my career as an investor, and I went to, uh, I think it was like 500 startups talk, yeah. and uh, you were up there and you were like, I'm, I used to be at Qualcomm, I like did all this low-level stuff with <laughs> whatever it was you were working on, super low-level stuff related to phones and whatnot, and uh, I was just like, wow, this guy is like super legit, this is like... That worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, I remember back in the day, Solana... You guys really struggled to get to get allies and to build to build a, a a coalition behind you guys. Struggled to get funding, even. Absolutely, absolutely. It, you went from basically being the you know the, the the ugly duckling that was struggling to really get you know funding and attention and energy and resources to you know having you know you talked about uh, Serum kind of putting the wind at your back and creating this tremendous momentum behind Solana. To now make you, you know, when when I look on the block, it's funny enough they have four tickers at the top, and Solana is one of them. Even though Solana, Solana is not the number four cryptocurrency, but in most people's minds, it is. And um, what has that? What have you learned from that transformation that you would not have expected when you first started being like, "I'm going to build a blockchain." What if you could go back and tell your previous self, like, "Hey, guess what, Anatoly? Here's what happens when you build one of the biggest blockchains in the world." What would you have been surprised to hear back then? The more success you have, the more work you have to do, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think I, of what I would have been really surprised that, like, the biggest use case is going to be pictures of, of, of like, <laughs> of apes. <laughs> it would just not have made any sense to me, right? Like, if yeah. I went back yeah. in time, like, four years ago, and I was like, look. Does it make sense to you now? <laughs> I have, uh, I've become a PFP collector and it does make sense to me. And it puts me back in a state of like playing Ultima online in those super early days of massive uh, MMOs, where for the first time you kind of had community on the internet that was interactive in like on the internet itself. And you could customize stuff and you were doing things these were like the first guilds that were being formed and things like that and i remember geeking out about that and feeling like i was part of something and that i kind of feel the same way about uh pfps so i i i don't know if that's like if most people feel that way but like i i kind of do so that that's like my reason for enjoying them i have to say you know so we talk a lot about solana we also talk we also 
admire Solana because I mean that's that's part of the reason why we talk about it so much. But most of all, I think I, I admire you for one, not only having gone through that hero's journey of building something that with 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 nobody on your side, uh, not nobody, but you know, not a ton of people on your side, to building one of the giants of the industry, but also the the spirit with which you've you've done it. Uh, we were talking before about how most L1 founders as they become more and more successful, they become more rambunctious. They kind of, they turn into assholes. They, kind of, you know, they start picking fights. Um, and you've somehow managed to carry yourself and Solana, despite the, um, the company in which you, you know, Solana obviously has got now it's fair share of shills and crazy people and whatever, just because it's so big that that's what happens. But you carry yourself with a Vitalik-esque level of grace and thoughtfulness, which has been amazing to see. You. Uh, oh, that's a huge compliment. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean it. I mean thank it. you. Yeah, thank you. That's a huge compliment. I think I got lucky in that I was older when I started this, so mm. past my rambunctious age. And <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I should ask that if if you if Anatoly had started Solana in his twenties, how do you think Solana would have gone differently? <laughs> I don't know if it would have made it. <laughs> actually, actually, a related question. You know, right now there's actually this kind of. Um, narrative that i won't say from who but there's many people who are doing this of like hey we need to like have like 18 year olds building everything or like 17 year olds or 12 year olds and how do you feel about who could this, this be narrative of like how do you feel about this like current like narrative of like oh like yeah we should only have kids like building any crypto no. project because like i i kind of feel like it, like it, it ignores the fact that like these things are hard to build you can't just like only have like people with a lot of excitement you also have to pe- have like a lot of yeah. different types of people. I would trust dads over 18-year-olds. Like, especially well, somebody, like, that has uh, been through, like, you know, with a two-year-old that's been through that, and they're still, moms, like, coding. Or moms. Yeah, or moms. Moms, yeah. Or moms. Like, anyone with, with like, that has raised kids has gone through some shit, but they're able to power through a startup. <laughs> You know, I, I, I want to reaffirm that statement because I actually also believe it. Um, I think one of the things that most people forget is that when we're building an industry like crypto, where in a lot of cases, people's entire net worth is at stake, it requires a level of seriousness in the approach to engineering systems that are stable enough that you're not going to vaporize someone's life savings. And like, there's many ways to go about this, but I think in general, not always the case. In general, the older you are, I think the more seriously you take that sort of like sacred, you know, you know, requirement of like, you know, and duty towards building. Not that, you know, there's not 18 year olds who feel the same way, but I think in general, the older you are, the more seriously you take that. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I think that, you know, in many cases, you know, you know, we'll see, you know, older founders and teams building things, you know, Tom, as the resident 19 year old, what's your, what's your take on this question? I think it's uh, you know, different specialties. It's like uh, Ender's Gate. You can uh, take the children and you can morph them to build amazing MEV bots. But if you need to do something responsible, then uh, you need to be a little older. So you got to just sort of segment. It's true. It's true. It takes all types, you know, and um, Vitalik was a, obviously a very, very young man when he first came up with the idea for Ethereum. And, it, it it seems very clear that he needed to be young and bright-eyed and, and to not be able to understand the objections that more seasoned people were telling him about why this wasn't possible. But it also seems true that it was important that Satoshi was probably not a young man and that uh, Satoshi, whoever he or she or they were, 
had a steadiness to them that allowed them to shepherd this thing into existence that required, to your point, Robert, a lot of seriousness and a lot of poise in order to build something of that nature. So I think, yeah, I, I like that. I like that view, Tom, that it, it takes different types of energy and different types of people in different stages of their lives to usher in different kinds of innovations. Yeah. I, and again, I, I think my main point here is just more like there is sort of this youth fetishization aspect of this that seems to be occurring a lot. And like, I just generally, anytime I see that kind of feel a little weird. And so because Anatoly was sort of like, you know, he brought up the fact that because he was older, it was, it was helpful. I think like th that's like a good message in some ways. I, it's a, you don't have to be some like 19 year old. I, I think you have survivor bias, right? You have a lot of the young kids try it and the ones that make it are the outliers the italics and he would have made it in anything i think given the size of his brain but most startups i think tend to succeed when they're founded and driven and led by more seasoned folks with like 10 with 10 year plus experience in whatever industry they're in because they kind of that you need more than just right out enthusiasm right you need a network of people to hire from you need like expertise you need gut instincts that are honed by that experience and that the only way to do that is you know by like spending your your butt in the seat for that that much time so i want to close out on one last thing so i think a lot of people in crypto look up to you anatoly as being one of the preeminent founders in the space and a real success story for obvious reasons what would be your advice to i mean look right now it's obviously a trying time it's a, it's a it's a bear market. A lot of people are have lost confidence about their prospects to be able to build something in crypto. What would be your advice to the entrepreneur who might be listening to this? I think right now is a, it, it's really hard to actually I think launch a company in the middle of a bull run because there's so much noise, and it's really hard to get to product market fit in a bull run because of that noise. And this is why post bull run you see a lot of those companies fail. Right, like despite them raising money, despite everything else, maybe maybe going seemingly going their way, they actually miss the most important part, which is product market fit. But in a bear market, there's a lot less noise, and if you can iterate and build and create, like get those hundred users, that's actually a much stronger signal than than anything else. So right now is the best time to build, and you're building for the next bull run with the hope that like you know. Like how many, it was like four of you, four DeFi projects, Compound, Ave, Uniswap, that caused the DeFi summer and like the real, the bull run, right? It only took four, right? That's it. So four entrepreneurs that join now and build something really, really good are going to cause the next cycle. And that, like, that's all you need. Well, that is a, that's a beautiful note to end on. Anatoly, thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom with us and bearing with our bearing with our bratty questions about Solana. Until next time, thank you, sir. Please keep Solana up because we've got a lot of need for it. And um, we look forward to seeing the next stage of evolution. Yeah, thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. That's it. Yeah.